Before we start today's podcast, I have a quick question for you. Have you already signed up for the Holiday Survival Team giveaway yet? If not, what are you even doing right now? I promise you, you don't want to miss out on this. The Holiday Survival Team is our framework to help you survive, heck, maybe even thrive through this holiday season. This is a community of like-minded people who want to enjoy the holidays, but not go off the rails with overeating, overdrinking, stress, and lack of exercise. What are you waiting for? Enroll today and make this your happiest, healthiest holiday season ever. You can find the registration link in the show notes for this episode. One day in the ocean, a wave was born. He started his life as a small swell, traveling along the ocean surface, slowly getting larger as he made his way towards land. He grew bigger and bigger, and as he grew, he became aware of himself compared to the other waves. And still he grew, and as he approached shore, he reared up out of the sea and declared, I am me. I am the mightiest wave in the ocean. I am unique. There is no other like me in all of the ocean. He climbed up out of the sea. He roared in all of his individual majesty. And then he crashed upon the shore. And as he dissolved back into the ocean, he realized that his individuality was an illusion. He always was, and he always would be, the sea. What does this simple story have to do with over 50 health and wellness? Bear with me, we're going to connect this story to the Bioverse, a Tyrannosaurus Rex named Sue, evolutionary biology, the future of medicine, quantum physics, and cyborgs. Hello and welcome to the Over 50 Health and Wellness Show. I'm your host, Kevin English. I'm the founder of The Silver Edge and our mission is to help you get into the best shape of your life, no matter your age, so you can show up in the second half of your life as the healthiest, strongest, most vital version of yourself. We have a fantastic show for you today. Dr. William Miller is here and he's going to share how our cells contain the secrets to life's biggest questions. But before we get to that, I want to let you know that this episode is brought to you by Levels. Levels is a new partner of mine. I recently found them and was attracted to their commitment to super high quality supplements with minimal ingredients. They give you all of the good stuff without any of the junk found in so many supplements today. No sugar, soy, gluten, artificial sweeteners, fillers, or proprietary blends. Their grass-fed whey is my go-to protein powder. It tastes great, and it's a fantastic source of clean protein. Anyway, you can check them out over at silveredgepartners.com. Just click on the Levels icon, and because you're a listener of this show, you can get 20% off your order when you use the coupon code TSE20 at checkout. Again, that's silveredgepartners.com, and be sure to use coupon code TSE20, that's T-S-E as in the Silver Edge, all run together, so TSE20 at checkout. Okay, enough of that, let's get on with today's show. My guest today is Dr. William Miller. 
Dr. Miller is an internationally known evolutionary biologist, a medical doctor. He's the author of seven acclaimed books and over three dozen peer-reviewed published articles. His latest book is Bioverse, How the Cellular World Contains the Secrets to Life's Biggest Questions. Join us today as we attempt to unravel some of life's biggest mysteries. We discuss the era of the cell and learn what this means for the future of medicine and longevity. Buckle up, we're in for a wild ride. Without further ado, let's meet Dr. Miller. It's a strange tale. It was a direction that I could never have anticipated. I was a practicing physician for over 35 years. I went to a medical meeting in Chicago, one that I went to almost every year for decades. And after several days of sitting, I couldn't take it anymore. I turned to a colleague and said, let's take an hour or two this afternoon and go to one of the local museums. And I suggested either the art museum or the field museum. And my friend said, let's go to the field museum. I entered the central rotunda of the field museum. And I don't know if any of your listeners have ever been there, but it's a magnificent space. And in the center of it, is an enormous fossil T-Rex skeleton. And actually, it's called Sue. So I like to think of my journey towards evolutionary biology as all due to a boy named Sue, like the Johnny Cash song. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it was that seized my imagination so powerfully. I'm looking at this monumental beast. But the thing that actually triggered me was uh, I knew a lot about human anatomy. Uh, uh, that was a large part of what I did in medicine. And I had never really thought about it before, but the bones of a T-Rex, I know this will sound a little silly, but trust me, it is really is true. The bones of the T-Rex are very similar to our own. So if you look at the top arm bone, this bone is called the humerus. It's awfully like our bones. And if you look at the vertebrae, very much alike, ribs are alike. The number of bones in certain areas that make an articulation are alike. And I'm just looking at these things. I even knew where the muscles inserted on the bones and they have certain irregularities that are very distinctive and they're very much alike. And I'm just struck by this and thinking, this thing lived 80 million years ago and survived for 6 million years. It was, they say, king of the planet. And then it was suddenly gone. And somehow or other, the, it looks an awful lot like us, if you really use your imagination very well. And I needed to know. And I turned to my friend and I made these observations and he looked at me and he's a really bright guy and he goes, you're being ridiculous. It's all a matter of time. And that statement didn't work for me. And so I began to study evolutionary biology. Fortunately, it was the era of the internet. And that allowed me to learn an entirely new field of science, a new discipline, and I was really obsessed. And it's led to five books in print and two more on the way and over 30 peer-reviewed articles and colleagues around the world. And a new way of looking at evolution that I came up with, which is also due to my medical background. And this will be pertinent to everything else that we talk about. I had noticed that infections followed very distinct patterns. There's nothing remarkable in my saying that. But what I determined was that the reason infections followed patterns is that microbes had preferences, which was a very uncommon thought. And if microbes had preferences, that meant that they were not 
the robotic organisms that we believed at the time, this is quite a long time ago now, it meant that they could be intelligent. And learning that, and then learning a good deal more about how humans are constructed, has made all the difference and leads to an entirely new and wonderful era that's going to begin. We are actually, we're just at the launch of it. It's called the era of the cell. And it's based on two things. It's based on our newfound understanding that we're not the single being that we think we are when we look into a mirror. We're collections of trillions of cells. And every single one of them is intelligent. This collection of cells is not just my own body cells. It's not just my liver cells or my brain cells or my skin cells. It's trillions and trillions of microbes that cohabit with me. And they're not just hangers-on. They're there because I'm the habitat they prefer. And they're contributing to my metabolism, my physiology. They helped govern my entire growth and development from the time I was born. And they'll exist after I die. And so combining these new ideas allows us to look at evolution in a very different way from Darwin. And it will lead to remarkable advances in healthcare that were just unimaginable even 10 years ago. Okay. There's a lot to unpack yeah, I know. here. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. I think that's a wonderful story though, that you just, you're at a medical conference. You just need to get up and stretch your legs a little bit. So you wander over to the history of natural museum there and you meet Sue, this T-Rex fossil. And as you're looking at it, you're seeing this creature from 80 million years ago that we all know from the Jurassic Park movies and everything, but you're noticing more in common than there is difference, I suppose, which most people probably aren't having that same experience, but you've got this in-depth anatomy knowledge, and you're going to couple that with this fascination with, with what did you say, evolutionary biology, and that's going to lead you into looking at all of the trillions of microbes that make up our body, which to your point are not just me, but they're these I'm the host for a lot of this. Can we have the symbiotic relationship? So before we dig into all of that, let's just pause here and let's do, let's just catch up on some vocabulary. So first of all, let's just start really basic. What is evolutionary biology? Evolutionary biology is the study of why you and I are sitting here today. So beginning, life began, they estimate, about 4 billion years ago, give or take a couple of hundred million years. And it was it certainly started in the shape of a single cell, one of those cells, one of those trillions and trillions of cells that we are. The question for evolutionary biology to answer is, what were the forces or forces that enabled that single cell to become us and all the other organisms that we can see with our eyes, all the unbelievable viruses and fungi and bacteria that populate the planet? and all the organisms that have gone extinct. Let's not disregard that 99% of all the species that have ever existed on this earth are already gone. Hmm. So evolutionary biology is the study of all of that. And so we seek answers to that question. And the reason why it's really important and not just an academic exercise is if we develop the proper answers, then we unlock tools for our own better health and well-being. 
And that's really the message I want all of you that are listening to get. The point of understanding evolutionary biology, which in this case overlaps cell biology, is that it will provide us with a much deeper insight into how we operate as an organism. And when we have that and learn how to partner better with our microbial half, that fraction of us that is germs that are bugs, but really important to our health and well-being, when we learn those tricks and learn how to leverage that partnership, we open up this new era of the cell that I'm mentioning, which will grant us wonderful privileges. We are surrounded by terrible news, Kevin. Every bit we hear is oppressive and annoying and almost suffocating in a way. Actually, hidden away is an enormous bit of good news. We are entering this new era of scientific exploration. It's unheralded. It's quiet. It doesn't get the publicity of the Webb telescope. It, the, it's much more important than Kim Kardashian. It's going, to open, <laughs> it's going yeah. to open our lives in many ways that we cannot think of now. And that's what I talk about in my new book, Bioverse, that uh, will familiarize you with the path that we're going to go down and teaches you a little bit of how we got to where we are. Okay. I love all of that. And I find it especially fascinating that you're going to talk about, you're going to make that connection with evolutionary biology with advances, medical advances and advances in, in health and longevity. So we certainly want to get there. And folks, we mentioned in the intro, that book is Bioverse, How the Cellular World Contains the Secrets of Life's Biggest Questions. But I got a couple more questions before we get there. You've mentioned cellular intelligence a couple of times. Can you put some parameters around that? What do you mean when you say cellular intelligence? You mentioned that these microbes have preferences. When you say cellular intelligence, what are we talking about? That's a terrific question. And it's the foundation of what will become the central aspect of this new era of exploration we're talking about. For all of biology. So since we have had an actual discipline of biology, we've presumed that microbes are just like little tiny robots. Didn't understand them. And we didn't understand the cells of our body, but we couldn't conceive of the possibility that they're independently intelligent. So let me explain what I mean by that to specifically answer your question, Kevin. It's not intelligent the way we are. That's the thing that everybody listening is got to share in understanding. We make a mistake in placing the kind of a cell intelligence that I'm talking about at the single cell level, and every single one of our cells is intelligent, into the, our terms of abstraction and how we connect bits of information together to problem solve. So how we go about doing it and how we actually display our privileges as the best thinkers on the planet, best meaning we're the most capable engineers on the planet, the, with single gifts of abstraction and ability to record ideas and have a recorded history like no other actual animal or, act, or plant. What I'm talking about is problem-solving ability. Each every single one of these cells is capable of receiving information, measuring it internally, making simple computations inside actually sophisticated computations inside, again, unlike the way we compute and solve math problems, and they communicate abundantly with each other. 
do they do that so that they can better understand the environmental information that they're receiving that's why cells get together in the in big aggregates like ourselves and then they problem solve together and what does that mean it means they can engineer now I, again they don't engineer the way we do we engineer with bricks and mortar and steel and all sorts of physical tools cells bioengineer with biomolecules and if it seems like i'm exaggerating i assure you i'm not it's this is the new science this is the wonderful new science that it would lead to because all of these capacities mean that we'll be able to part with partner with them in ways that we've never understood before cells are social they're very social beings it seems really strange to go ahead and put the world of little tiny microscopic cells into language that's similar to humans but let me explain why i'm doing it i'm not trying to make cells into little humans on the opposite i'm trying to teach quite correctly that your cells and the human things that you do the things that you think are exclusively human are all derivatives of the capacities of your cells we engineer because they engineer not the reverse and so unlocking wonderful new degrees of progress this new era of the cell that i emphasize is all about making that critical imaginative leap based on solid science and then learning how to exploit it Okay, so I think we're starting to get a picture of what you mean when you say the bioverse and the era of the cell. And I think that this is absolutely fascinating, this idea of cell intelligence. And we don't want to anthropomorphize cells in the way right. say, Disney might. We don't want to give them personalities and assign to them our abstract logic. But they, to you, you're saying that they are problem solving, that they're taking inputs from their environment and communicating, and they are, what did you say, bio, actually bioengineering together. Sure. And I think that it's really interesting because you started this whole thing early on talking about this. When you first mentioned the era of the cell, you said, hey, look, we're made up of trillions of our own cells. We're made up of trillions and trillions of other cells, all synergistically making us and I th how did you say it? You said we are not the individual that we think we are because coming full circle here, right? That these trillions of microbes are all engineering together so that I can engineer, so that I can sit here and have a dialogue with you and that over technology that we've created. Is that a fair way of looking at Absolutely. Am I overstating the cell there? Uh, honestly, I think you and I should go into partnership. You explained it better. Really, I think <laughs> right. you've summarized it beautifully. I, let me further emphasize it this way. You're a solution. You're problem solving in action. This is really difficult frame of reference to accept. It's extremely difficult for science, my scientific colleagues. I have many scientific colleagues that now agree, and we have a lot of scientific literature, peer-reviewed literature, that, that has accepted these ideas. And they're very different from where we came before. We used to, as I said, we, we used to think that little cells were robots. Well, actually, we thought a lot more. We, in the Victorian era, when we began to learn about evolution as a strict discipline, that was when Darwin, in 1859, he wrote a seminal book on the origin of species. And although he was not the first person with the idea of natural selection, he put it into a framework that was extremely powerful. 
And so everyone acknowledges and that he's the premier giant that got all this started. And I completely agree with that. In that era, this is a Victorian England. We believed that our evolutionary path was one of rabid competition. It was the phrase survival of the fittest. I think many of your listeners are going to be familiar with that kind of catchphrase for how we should think about Darwinian evolution. And for a long time, that was believed. In fact, there was a famous poem by Tennyson that actually was 10 years earlier. But the phrase is nature read in tooth and claw. Gives you a very vivid idea of how Victorian men thought of evolution. And why did Victorian men, why were they so seduced by that concept of that's the way evolution was? Because it fit their ideas of where Victorian men ought to be in the hierarchy. They were there not only because they were lucky to be born into that status, but because they were superior. And so evolution was a constant battle towards hierarchy and the superior, the fittest organism wins. Now we know that's wrong. It isn't, of course, there's vicious competition in biology. Any, anyone that's watched the wonderful nature shows that they can pick up almost any day on TV knows that, oh my God, the Serengeti, it's, it's a bloodbath sometimes. But what we know now is that the organism that gets to participate in this end of life struggle between lion and wildebeest They're both collections of tens of trillions of collaborating cells, a concept called symbiosis. It means two organisms get along with each other to the advantage of each. All of this collaboration, if you look at the insect world, although they're they're constant battles among insects, they cooperate and collaborate in their trillions. Termites work together and build elaborate structures. So it's collaboration that is the hidden force that propels evolution. And that collaboration is, the the impulse behind that is intelligence. The cells are intelligent. The insects are intelligent. In Victorian London, no one thought their dog had an abstract life. If they had a brain, it was only to help them move. They They responded in a reflex way to stimuli. They show them a scrap of meat and they'll fight each other for it. We know differently now. We know that dogs are very smart. We know cats are very intelligent. We know octopuses, invertebrates, which we used to think was a lower order type of animal. I think anyone, there's a, a, I think a a movie about the intelligence of an octopus teaching a man these valuable lessons. But the thing that I want to stress is that every form of intelligence is different and it solves problems in their realm. So, If dogs ruled the world, they would determine an IQ based on the ability to sniff, the ability to discriminate odors. Bears have a a sense of smell that's 7,000 times better than our own. So is that a form of intelligence? It is if it lets you problem solve in your environment. So if you need to smell carrion three miles away, a bear can easily do it. And of course, we, we could not. So that's a problem being solved in that element. And so that's the difference. What do we need to learn about ourselves? They are, th- they are very skillful problem solver- solvers at their scale, so much so that they've create- they create the world that we live in. We live in a cellular world. And even though we see ourselves as one single thing, and we are seamless, living, 
intelligent organism. We are an aggregate of all those intelligences, and they connect together, and by connecting together, they make us, and further, we've now learned, our connections, the way our cells connect us across this planet, in a, it's a living connectome, a sets of connections of highways and byways that we can't see, they're invisible, but they're just as real as we are. And that's one of the very great lessons that we learned from this new era of the cell. Okay, lots to unpack there as well. So certainly we could be guilty of having a very human-centric definition of intelligence the way we define it. And I, it's, <clears throat> I, I like your example of Victorian men deciding uh, the definition of evolution because it suits them, right? It, to the victors go the spoils. But as you're talking about these beings, the wildebeest and the lion, both being made up of these trillions of cells and working together, problem solving in their own communities in their own way, and that being a type of intelligence, it seems to me that where my mind went is right where you were finishing that thought, which is, I believe now, if that's the case, then what ramifications does that have for connectedness? For example, you and I, or me to other living things on this planet, are we all made up of similar types of cells? And is the next step to that some sort of interplanetary connectedness? Or is that a bit of a reach? Is that it's maybe not. going into the mystical? No, we're not going to go into the mystical at all. Everything that we're going to talk about is absolutely solid science. Here's, you've asked some terrific questions. Every cell is a unique self. It's Difficult to imagine that a cell could have its own self-identity, its own self-integrity, but it does. It acts to protect that self-integrity. Here's what cells have learned that it would be good for us to learn. Cells have learned that they serve themselves best by serving others. And let me explain what I mean by that. It's, it's not mysticism. It's not metaphysics. It's just how do cells get along in the tens of trillions? Not only do they get along when it's a liver cell, with a kidney cell. They get along with a cohabiting microbiome of trillions that are entirely different species. They don't share genomes at all. I, actually, they do in an evolutionary sense, but in an at-the-moment sense, they're distinctly, completely different organisms, completely different scales of life. How do they ever cooperate to make a liver, to make a circulatory system, to make us feel one? to us feel a unitary being. They follow sets of principles. These are not theoretical. These are scientifically shown. They collaborate. They cooperate. They establish codependencies. They trade resources freely. And yes, they do compete. Sometimes they compete viciously, but mostly they compete to mutual advantage. That helps explain cancer. Why, does, why is cancer so destructive? Because it is a different self. It actually is a different genetic makeup from the regular cells. It's called a karyotype. But we don't need to go into any fancy words to understand this concept. Cancer cells have a distinctly different identity. And they reproduce in, in, at different rates in different ways. And they do not freely trade resources. They use deceptions. They evade the normal immune system 
which establishes to, to keep those rules that I mentioned of cooperation and collaboration, to keep this order, there's got to be the, there got to be the cops, as it were. There's got to be an immune system that helps regulate all this. Cancer defies that. And that's why cancer is destructive. So we actually have the exception that proves the rule. Cancer is frighteningly common as a threat to us, but it's really not that common among cells. Only a few cancer cells need to get us a start among trillions and you've got a problem. So we humans can look to ourselves to justify certain living rules for ourselves. What should we be doing? We should collaborate. We should cooperate. We should freely trade resources. We're allowed to compete as long as we do so respectfully. What should we be doing with all of those things? Pay attention to the primary principle, self-integrity. The reason that cells freely trade resources is that their self-integrity is respected. It, if this sounds unlikely, it, it sounds like I'm making them up to be little humans. That's not. How are human characteristics are caused? This is exactly what cells do. We do all those things ourselves, but we add our own little abstract uh, difficulties because we like the complications in our lives, and that's what we choose to do. What principle can we learn? We could learn that there's a great deal of satisfaction and an enhanced sense of well-being when we simply understand that we serve ourselves best by serving others. That's what cells get, that we sometimes don't. A lot of times we do, but a lot of times that simple principle eludes us and it almost seems childish. No, it's, it is the essential living principle on this planet. Yeah, nature does have a sense to me personally of perfectness to it. And going back to your example of the wildebeest and the lion, somebody look at that and think, well, that doesn't look very perfect to me. And when I watch that on the nature channel and see that poor gazelle getting eaten, but it seems that it just finds left alone, it just finds this homeostasis, this balance that allows it to continue in a healthy manner where it seems to me sometimes mankind gets in there and we don't create healthy balances that yeah. you know, are perpetual. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, uh, Kevin, but. I, th I think that's really great. I think that's true. Let me just say uh, in emphasis of, of what you're talking about, what we don't realize when we see the drama on, on in between animals struggling to survive, which they do. We forget that it's as much as there's death, there's also birth of new communities. What do I mean by that? When you think of start thinking of things in cellular terms and realize that it's really all about cells on this planet. We are just one form of cellular collection, one type of communal habitat. When the gazelle dies, it is serving as nutrients for other sets of cells. And there's a thing after death called a necrobiome. It means that whatever's left over is its own collection of cells that begin to partner with other cells that are in the environment, in the dirt, other scavengers. The scavengers pick up some of these cells. They distribute them to other environments half a mile down the road. The end result is this connectome that you asked me about. This, it, we see it as the death of the organism, and it certainly is, but it's the birth of new communities that's going on at the same time. And if this sounds mystical, it's not. This is just the way the science works. We just didn't know it. We leave a trail of life everywhere we go from the moment of our birth and after death through our necrobiome. So what, when I say we leave a trail, what, sitting here, you and I, Kevin, we're surrounded by a cloud of billions of microbes. 
You and I can't see it, <laughs> but they're there. They're circulating around us. It's called a microbial cloud. It's extremely well documented. We have a signature out there just surrounding us. So much so that if you have samples, a person's microbiome ahead of time and, and cellular samples of that person ahead of time, you can suck the air out of a room and determine who's there by the unique features that can be distinguished. This sounds like science fiction, and I don't think anybody's doing it. It would make a, a, a pretty good movie. Anybody wants to contact me from Hollywood, I'll be happy to be there to help on the writing, script writing. But it's not far-fetched. We have a definite singularity. We are singular in the sense that we leave a singular feature of our collective intelligence, which is includes the exact competition of our microbiome. My microbiome bears a similarity to yours, Kevin, but it's not the same. We're very distinguishable. Twins that look absolutely identical to us have very distinguishable microbiomes, which is the proof. Bloodhounds can track either twin unerringly. Why can bloodhounds follow a scent trail over 100 miles? Why can they do it three weeks after the person's passed through and still do it without fault? How is it that they never forget a smell, an individual smell? It's, first of all, they're very smart. But secondly, we're, to them, we're just like a roadmap of cheese doodles. They just can't imagine this lovely smell that they can follow. And that's as different to them than cherries might be. I mean, I know this sounds over the top, but it's not. It's just we leave this characteristic signature. So I'm shedding microbes. I'm shedding my skin cells. I'm shedding spittle and other products, other things along the way. And all of that is some of these cells are dead, but many, most, many, most are still living. Some of them will be consumed by other microbes and other cells when they enter the environment. But that's your signature. And it is imprinting everywhere you go, whether you like it or not. There is no stopping it. And so you have a permanent planetary signature. And I say permanent because once you enter into this river of intelligent cell communication, in which one cell affects another cell and leaves its mark on that cell, no matter how tiny it is, you become part of this exquisite planetary connectome. And it's involuntary. It's your privilege and your fate. You, it, it, there is no choice. Okay. <laughs> that is fascinating. So we ended up with a, what did you say, a permanent planetary signature right? that I am all of us are leaving and i'm trying to i'm trying to wrap my head around what this might mean for just in terms of thinking of say an afterlife or of thinking of immortality or even just thinking of you know, we know that medical advances are going to have people living a long time in terms of longevity what are the ramifications of this the signature, this permanent signature, I think of myself basically as, of course, the mind, the body, the spirit in my case. And I have this kind of holistic sense of self, but still a sense of self in my own case. I do have this, I, I am very aware that I am a part of something much bigger, but to hear you come at it, I'm coming at that from a very feeling, emotional, spiritual path. 
you're coming at this from a much different path. You're coming at this from a cellular biology path, and you're saying that you do have this permanence. You do have this connected with Mm -hmm. all life. And it seems to me we're arriving in this, we're meeting here, this on-ramp of our, of these two divergent thought streams really are starting to merge together a little bit. Is that fair? You keep saying this isn't mystical, it's not metaphysical, and it's not. You're talking about cell biology, and these are just the way these things behave. But now we're getting to things like these permanent planetary signatures. And what does that mean for just the average day person, somebody like me? Yeah, let's go down. Let's talk about two distinct facets of this great question. First, the fact that you have an individual signature that your cells are individually intelligent and that together they these individual cells create you as an individual has a very strong ramification for medicine. And I think it will lead to a, a new concept in medicine called salutogenesis. I love fancy words. You can't go to a doctor that doesn't like a fancy term. Salutogenesis is not a term I came up with, but it means that a, a way of an integrated way of looking at healthcare in which the well-being is, it's not just conquering diseases, it's creating a total sense of well-being across your entire lifespan. And so it's not quite holism, and it's certainly not traditional medicine. What it will mean most specifically for this era of the cell is we will use new tools, and we will find many ways to use, to start treating things in a very specifically individual way. It will not be one size fits all. So you go to the doctor, he goes, boy, your blood sugar's up and I think you need some diabetes medicine. He's gonna, or she will run you through the traditional medicines that will be the frontline things and they may or may not work for you. In the future, in salutogenesis, in the ear of the cell, there will be tools where they will be able to explore ahead of time, which ones are most likely to work for you and get you more quickly and at the lowest necessary dose to do what you mean. But there's a further implication to that. You may not have ever developed diabetes. There will be smart biosensors developed with these new techniques that will have developed 12 years earlier, will have noticed that your microbiome is out of whack. And don't forget your microbiome is a strategic player in your metabolism and helps maintain your normal glucose regulation, determines how sensitive your cells are to insulin, which is what they need to control your blood sugars and keep them from going too high or too low, keep them in a physiological range. So you may never have developed it because there would have been strategic interventions in the shape and quality of your microbiome with additions or deletions that are necessary for you to be the healthiest individual that you can given your genetic complement. And so that's the future that we're dealing with this, the, these individual cells and the connectome that I'm talking about. They, you will, we will learn how to leverage the connections between our cells and our microbiome to keep ourselves healthier. And we're already starting to do that with products that are being developed, new techniques that are being developed. Now let's go on to the second question, the really deeper and I think intellectually much more difficult one, which is, do we have a permanent presence beyond the planet? So I have established, and this is not theoretical, you have a permanent signature on the planet. It may not be like I'm Napoleon and everybody remembers my name kind of signature. It's a signature of your living intelligence and some element of how you participated during your life on the planet. I'm not offering religious convictions here. I'm just telling you, 
there's this signature. It is you. It has you in it. It may not be the you that you spiritually thirst for, but it exists. It also probably exists across the cosmos. And let me explain why. There are two reasons why. We don't have a lot of time, but I'll be brief. The first is they're both scientifically based. The first is that we have learned now that our cells depend upon what we would call classical thermodynamics, utilization of energy to produce work, to create heat, to help our metabolism, classical thermodynamics, but also are very heavily reliant on quantum mechanisms. So quantum mechanisms, those are the things Einstein would call quantum mechanisms spooky, where one atom could connect to another and they, they can act upon each other. They can be correlated at a distance, theoretically, across the entire universe. So spooky action at a distance is what Einstein termed it. And it still remains spooky. We can measure it. We can define it. We've proved it. We don't know exactly why it happens. We've got names and descriptors for it. But we know it happens. We also know now that it is very important for our senses, our vision, our hearing, and our sense of smell called olfaction all depend on these quantum processes. There are many different ones, electron tunneling, non-locality, but we use them. Birds navigate due to quantum processes. Their gyromagnetic compass, their internal gyromagnetic compass is dependent on quantum interactions for them to know where they're going. There's an implication. In generally in quantum matters, if something, if a quantum mechanism is known to work locally, on the local level, at one level, then the strong implication exists. It works at every level. So if we have the principle of connectedness across the body, so for example, for me to raise my arm, like that requires the, the simultaneous firing of uncountable trillions of special energy molecules called ATP molecules. Doesn't The name doesn't matter. But the point is, there is no known physical mechanism, the standard electrical model where it goes, the connections that we think of like electricity. You can't account for that based on it. And some scientists believe that this is an explicit example of non-locality, meaning these ATP molecules all know they're firing at the same time even though they're not connected in the standard way. There's another connection. There's a quantum connection. What does that mean? It means that there's a high probability that this quantum connection exists across the universe. Now, there are many researchers that have loved the topic of quantum consciousness, and we do not have time to go into that. We could schedule another time if you like. But <laughs> We just might, yeah. So the thing is, I want to emphasize, I'm not saying that we have quantum consciousness across the universe. I'm just saying that we have quantum connections. And once those connections occur, let's say 37 trillion miles away, theoretically possible, what is out there that receives this is never quite the same. Is that a signature? It is, but it isn't the signature you may want. However, I will add that it doesn't mean that the signature you want isn't out there. That's for you to decide. You have to decide. I can offer to you the science. You supply the spirituality. You make of it what you feel that you what you understand inside you. 
It, my, my discussion of the science does not take precedence over your feelings of what you need in your life. I can offer to you that there are connections. You need to make up them as you will. Okay, that lands with me. I certainly, I'm aware that when we talk about the self, and this is really how you started this whole conversation. You said, when I, I look in the mirror, I see me, I'm an individual and I'm separate from everything else. And in my worldview, that's an illusion, right? I didn't get there through cellular biology. I got there through a different path, but I am a part of the fabric of the universe, if you will. And so as it turns out, what I really am is the collection of these trillions of cells all working communally here. And I just think that this is fascinating. But what I really want to do here is let's bring this back to a more grounded, let's earth this a little bit here. So you had talked about salutogenesis and this, what do you call it, an integrated healthcare that works towards an optimal sense of well-being. Now that I do have very practical interest in. Given all of this as the backdrop, my audience is all interested and they're over 50. They want to be healthy. They want to be vital. They want to be strong. They want to be capable. Some of them have some goals towards longevity. But what can I practically do with this information knowing now that I've got these, we now know that we're made up of a bunch of different biomes. It's not just a, mm -hmm. it's not just the gut biome. We have biomes everywhere, right? I got one in my mouth. I got them out of my skin. I have, I'll, I'm just made up of these trillions of cells. What's my prescription then for the care and feeding of this colony here? How do I take best care of myself today? And then I'd like to maybe launch from there about maybe the future of what might be coming. But for right now, given all this, what's, what is my best prescription for the care and feeding of this body? The answer to that needs to be in two phrases, just like you had mentioned that let's get started with what you can do today, which is great. And what will the future hold? Yeah. At this moment. On the basis of the research that we've done to date, we have a new understanding why some of the old dictums, the ones that you probably heard about since you were a kid, like moderation in all things, get daily exercise, have a regular sleep schedule. Why, why before these things were intuited based on I feel better or things like that, an intuitive notion that these were the correct things to do? Now we know that there's a set of things you can do, and there have been previous people that have advised these things, but now we understand the cellular basis. So for instance, diet is one way to leverage a partnership with yourselves. How do you leverage that partnership? You give your microbiome those things that it needs. What does, the, what does your microbiome need that it's not getting? much more fiber than it ever had before. When we've been human beings like ourselves for at least 200,000, maybe as many as 300,000 years. So we have an evolutionary narrative. And let me just say that all of that evolutionary narrative is a co-development between our microbiome our, our, and our body cells. So they've established a set of codependencies that I was talking about, collaboration, codependencies, trading resources. What that means is, though, we've spent, let's just say that the period of time was 200,000 years. We've spent 199,900 years doing one thing. And now in the last fewer than 100 years, we have a new set of things. What do we have? Refined foods, much higher salt content, huge amounts of sugar, terrific drop in, in uh, bioaccessible microbes from foods 
Um, we, we just don't eat foods all out of the ground anymore. We have much lower levels of intake of plant fibers and grains. Uh, these are the diets that the non-developing countries vaguely stick to. But for all of our evolutionary period, we're hunter-gatherers. So we don't have to become hunter-gatherers again. We don't have to do anything extreme. But what are the simple things that any listener could do? It's the amount of fiber in your diet. You can look that up on the web. We won't take the time to do that, but a million resources to figure out how to get excellent bioaccessible fibers into your diet. Why is that important? Because your microbes produce many of the metabolites you need for your health and well-being, help to support your blood pressure and your glucose metabolism. They even support your well-being and behaviors. We talk now about a gut-brain axis. It means that the microbes in your gut are contributing metabolites like serotonin, 90% pr produced by your by substrates that your gut microbiome uh, produces. Serotonin is a key neurotransmitter that helps support a sense of well-being and being balanced and happy. If we don't feed them our microbes properly, then we'll suffer. We'll have fewer specific bioactive molecules that we need short-chain fatty acids, polyphenols. These are metabolites that help us strengthen our metabolism and our immune systems. And this is not an infomercial. You need to use my product to, to strengthen your immune system. I'm saying these are the practical ways to do it because that's our evolutionary pathway. Increase fibers, cut down on meat. It, the Mediterranean diet is probably the single best diet. There's no single best diet for you. You're an individual. You need to experiment. You need to decide. But as a nice good start, look into the Mediterranean diet. That's moderation in all things. High fiber content, low sugar content, lower salt, lower artificial sugars have not played out like we hoped. They're, they don't seem to help with diets and they do mess with your microbiome substantially. And they can be a source of what we call dysbiosis and undermining that microbiome. Cut down on those. Two other things that you can do right at the immediate moment, and then we'll talk about the future. We know now that our intelligent cells all have their own biological clocks. They have their own rhythms, and those rhythms help govern our rhythms. So if we want to be healthy, balanced, and feel as though we have enhanced well-being, we have to support we have to be good partners to our microbiome on that kind of a balancing act. How do you do that? Really, everybody knows. It's just contemporary life is, is seducing you, undermining you. Sleep a regular schedule, a routine schedule every night. Put away your phone. Let it go. It's not that important. Exercise daily. Why, why should you exercise daily. I've just said you should sleep regularly because your microbiome needs a regular schedule. It needs its rests too. It doesn't rest on your schedule. It adapts to your schedule in microbiome and cellular scales, which is days, not it, their lifespans are days and then they turn over to the next generation. But the point is, in fact, in certain microbes, it's 20 minutes. But the thing is, when you're on a regular schedule, you're assisting their natural co-evolved rhythm with you. The same thing with exercise. Throughout our history, we've expended huge amounts of calories every day. Our bodies crave it. We depend on that for to keep our metabolism sharp and our immune system competent. So 
if you get moderate exercise on a daily basis, you've partnered very well with yourselves. We know as an absolute certainty that there's such a thing as too much exercise. Elite athletes actually are more prone to respiratory infections than those that are not. They pay that price. They do so willingly because they are they love what they do. But there's a balance. There's moderation in all things, and daily exercise is part of it. So what will we do in the future? Where can we do? Well, here's another thing you can do. I'm sorry for jumping around, but there's a substantial amount of research that supplementing fibers with prebiotic and probiotic foods and you can look them up on the web, see what those are. You can. It looks as though adding a supplement, a probiotic supplement, also called a symbiotic, it, the data behind that is very strong, that this helps boost your immune system and helps your metabolism because it is providing extra doses of those microbes that you evolved with that provide the essential met, no, metabolites that you need to keep a balanced uh, microbiome and to keep a, a strong metabolism. So that's one other immediate thing you can consider and you do your own research. There's a lot of material on the web that you could look into and you can look at the manufacturers and make a determination for yourself, which is best for you. In the future, with new tools, with this new understanding of cellular partnership, we will develop enormously powerful ways of manipulating cells that have started to go into disrepair. This will include specialized biomolecules that will cure, that, that will interrupt damaged meta- metabolic pathways. We will learn how to successfully utilize biofields, bio, uh, bioelectrical fields particularly. We all know that certain animals can regenerate limbs. We may never get to the point where we successfully regenerate a normal limb, but we will regenerate some body tissues very successfully because we're going to unlock the keys on how to do that. We're going to utilize these cells and the techniques we devise from them to develop very sophisticated biosensors. These will be able to monitor you in a continuous way that's sensitive to you, not the one size fits all biosensors, but fitting your metabolic profile to let you know that things are getting out of whack and letting you head it off at the pass. And this will become a primary way of preventative medicine, not a dipstick in a urine sample anymore, but a specifically sensitive, made to order, made to measure for you set of bioindicators that can help you feeling well. Let's remember, none of us are alike. We all know some people that are obese and are healthy. They're just fine. We know certain diabetics do very well, live till their 80s and 90s. And it It does not completely undermine them. We don't know why yet. We'll learn that, and then we'll learn how to keep you healthier, maybe not by the old metrics. You may not be a perfect readout on a a scan, but it'll be just right for you. That's salutogenesis. That's where we're going. And then lastly, and this is not just medicine, all of our cells are engineers. All of our microbes are engineers. They cooperate together for engineering. And that's, what, that's how we became who we are. We are their project. We, they, we are their engineered product as a reproducible habitat. It sounds very deflating, but hmm. that's what yeah. we are. And we will learn how to partner with our microbes for our own betterment. And that will give us an array of all sorts of products that will 
enhance the quality of our lives, we will have uh, synthetics, which are the, using the intelligence of our cells with the um, sophisticated or the emergingly sophisticated architecture of computers. Computers are not going to be come alive, but we're going to create quasi-alive computers by marrying them to intelligent cells. So we'll, they will become very sensitive and very capable companions of uh, us, and, and yet almost unimaginable ways. It sounds like science fiction, but it's not. It's going to happen. It's already being worked on in labs. Yeah, I suppose that's inevitable. And people listening probably think, well, that sounds like a cyborg. Yes. Uh, I suppose when we start yep, marrying way, these, absolutely. these biomes with some synthetics and combining these things together, that's absolutely fascinating. I love speculating about the future. I feel like a lot of these, especially in the medicine side of things, I, I feel like we're really close on this. I know we had the CEO of Acorn Biolabs, I think, on, and they're already doing cell banking. There's only limited things you can do with that today, and they're getting these little stem cells from your hair follicles. But they're, like you're saying, it, the they are banking on the fact that the future will be this very bio-individual medicine and not this, here, take a pill because you have, you're becoming diabetic or your cholesterol is too high or whatever that is. So lots of fascinating things there. Bill, as we are wrapping up here, what's next for you personally? What do you have on the horizon? Right now, I've just finished a new book on evolution called Cognition-Based Evolution. And it's at the publishers, Getting Readied. I'm working with colleagues around the world. I'm very lucky to be able to do that. And the next thing for me is I believe the messages of Bioverse, and Kevin, you've allowed me to articulate a lot of them today. I'm deeply appreciative of it. I believe I can serve myself best by serving others, by serving them Bioverse. It's not self-aggrandizing. The messages of ourselves are those things that are both empowering and vital for our tumultuous time. If there's anything that we need is to sit back and respect that we could do better if we listen to ourselves. Yeah, using ourselves as a model for a better humanity. I think that's a fantastic way to wrap up here. Bill, as we are signing off here, how can people connect with you and learn more? They can take a look at my book, a Bioverse. It's available at all the regular commercial outlets, Amazon, Parts and Noble. They can connect through ourbioverse.com. And I have a, a, an excellent science feed. It's pure science, no politics, nothing, no, nothing, just science. And that's at Bill Miller, MD on Twitter. Fantastic. And folks, I will put all of that into the show notes as well as links for all of Bill's books. And you can find that there. Bill, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. This has been a fun, enlightening, and certainly educational conversation. I know our folks are going to take a lot away from this. I just wish you all the best in all your future endeavor. And thanks again so much for sharing your passion and your wisdom and your knowledge with us. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate this opportunity. It's been a privilege. Okay, folks, that's our show for this week. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I want to let you know that we have other free resources over at silveredgefree.com. 
There you'll find our free guides with our top tips on nutrition, exercise, and healthy lifestyle. We just added the Over 50 Booty Builder Guide a couple weeks ago, and that's been very popular. So feel free to head over there and download anything that looks useful to you and your health and wellness journey. I also want to let you know that you can find all of the links to the resources we discussed in this episode over at silveredgefitness.com slash episode 153, and you can continue the conversation over there as well. I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments on today's show. I really appreciate you spending your time with me today, and until next time, stay strong. all the troubles in our world this is the very best time to be alive ever the best is yet to come and my only regret is i don't have another 70 years because if we don't destroy ourselves i'd love to see it